thank you, Dr. Maseka, and thank you to all of our elders who take time to pray for us as a church. Aren't we thankful for the godly men that the Lord has given us here at this church? Amen. They're wonderful men that we have serving on our elder board. Well, uh, as I get set up, I just wanted to uh, remind you that today I'm leaving for Pamburham, Saskatchewan, just uh, part of my master's course, so I'll be gone for a week, and instead of eating and running, I'm going to be preaching and running, so um, I'm going to preach and then leave, uh, and then Dave will be taking care of our benediction and whatnot, so if you have anything you need throughout the week, please still call the office, and uh, we'll just make Dave drive in from Crossfield five times a week this time. Hey, Dave, how does that sound? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but we're thankful for Dave and his ministry here. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Acts chapter 15. Uh, we preached up to about chapter 30, or sorry, not chapter, but verse 35 last week. And now we're going to be continuing on finishing chapter 15 today and going about 10 verses into chapter 16. These verses here are kind of uh, a segue. There's not a whole lot going on. There's a little bit going on that's important, uh, but it's leading up to some major ministry into, the year, uh, into Europe. Uh, but we have to discuss this kind of segue, this change of course that happens because it's necessary for us to understand the book of Acts and how God guides us in that. But for way of recap, last week uh, we, uh, we saw uh, Paul and Barnabas returning home victoriously from the council of Jerusalem, bringing with them wonderful news that the Gentile believers don't have to be circumcised or adopt a Jewish lifestyle in order to be saved. And all the men said amen in that congregation, and they were excited and happy. And if the council were to make a different decision and impose the Jewish regulations onto the Gentile believers, we would have seen Christianity boil into just another Jewish set. It would not have become the worldwide phenomenon that we know it as. We would, not, we would not have seen the gospel go as far west as far as Canada today if that were the case. So we thank God for the faithfulness of the men at Jerusalem Council who made that decision. And now Paul and Paul is eager to get going again. They won some debates. They won some church uh, 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 rulings. And now he's ready to set back out on the road. And he talks to Barnabas and he gets, they're just wanting to return to the churches that they've preached and the Christians that they have established and bring encouragement to them. And they expected to follow up with the new believers to approve any false doctrines that may have been going on. This was before or long before telephones, so they had to travel to do this. Now we can just rebuke you over Skype or Zoom, I guess, but now they have to go in person and they teach more about God's grace. They're sharing the results of the Jerusalem Council. They want to build up the existing church leadership. And Paul and Barnabas, what we see from that is that they're not willing to make the same fallacy that we make today as a modern day church, where we just try to pigeonhole new converts through making a decision, quote unquote. And and then we just say, okay, just join us on Sunday morning. You're okay after that. But they weren't going to make that same mistake. They want to go back and intentionally follow up. And as we preached in that sermon before a couple weeks ago, that this is a major step in our, in our evangelism and discipleship of Drumheller, that we are making follow-up with our neighbors, making follow-up with the people that we are sharing the gospel with. 
So what we'll see in today's verses is how Paul uh, was moved from point A in Antioch with his neatly ordered plans of what to do next and ending up in point B in Europe. And the answer to this question of how he made it from Antioch to Macedonia does not fit our neatly nice packaged westernized understanding of how we understand God's guidance in our lives. It's actually really messy. You see, Paul doesn't even know what is happening. He doesn't even fully understand where God is leading him until after he makes that step of obedience. And it's often like that in our lives as well. So with that, what we see in our first verses is God's direction from conflict and failure. Okay, the remote is working. I don't know. We have a crazy technology today, (laughs) so I'm just making sure. So if you have your Bibles, let's start reading in verse 36 of Acts 15. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where they proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. So this is just a natural proposal uh, from Paul to Barnabas. They wanted to go back uh, into, uh, into ministry. Paul and Barnabas have worked very well together as a team ever since Barnabas went back to Tarsus and picked up Paul to help him with the ministry in Antioch, as we saw earlier in the book of Acts. We've seen them become a dynamic duo with uh, Barnabas's relational abilities. He was a very relational man and coupled with Paul's mastery of the law and his uh, immense intellect that the God that God has uh, gifted him with, they became a dynamic duel which produced dynamic results. And moreover, the challenges of the first missionary journey had produced a profound exchange of soul between these two brothers. They didn't just suffer together, but they were like-minded. They shared vision together. They were soul brothers. And to be sure, I'm sure they annoyed each other along the way. I'm sure uh, they, they argued and had little disagreements agreements, and even probably disappointed each other in ministry. Uh, But they never, I don't believe they ever thought about ever being separated. Maybe by death, they, they, they all knew what they were signing up for, that they could die for the name of Christ. But I don't thought, I don't think any of these missionaries thought, expected what was about to happen as we see in verse 37, which says, Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take them who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had gone with them to work. And there arose a sharp disagreement, so they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And they went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So we cannot be sure why John Mark originally left. As I said in that sermon when it arose, it's not helpful for us to even sit here and make speculation because the Holy Spirit didn't inspire Luke to detail it. And there could be a whole host of reasons why John Mark left, but what we do know for sure is that Paul interpreted his leaving as abandonment, as desertion. And Barnabas, who was John Mark's cousin, as you see in Colossians 4.10, saw the situation from a totally different angle. He saw John Mark as one who obviously wanted a second chance. He might have been younger and more immature, and now he's a little bit more mature, and wanted to give him another shot. And he resented the Apostle Paul's uh, uh, opinion of John Mark. And that's when we read in verse 39 that a sharp 
uh, disagreement arose. And this word, a sharp disagreement, this phrase literally means violent action or emotion. They were upset. This wasn't a mild gentleman's disagreement where they would just uh, recommune after breakfast. They were heated, and they were having a heated exchange, and it was intense and passionate. And you might be thinking, well, who's to blame for that? Well, that's not an easy question or answer either. Many scholars have had their own sharp disagreements over this passage as well. And so what I feel as I pondered this throughout the week is, yeah, my heart feels for Barnabas. Because Barnabas is just being who Barnabas is. He is showing the power of Christian love and forgiveness. If you remember, Barnabas was the only apostle who looked at Paul, the arch enemy of the church, and said, okay, I'll risk my life to see if he's truly a Christian. I'll bring him in. And he got to know Paul. But however, Paul doesn't want John Mark to join their company. So Barnabas exudes love and forgiveness and sympathy, but Paul prioritizes the demanding needs of the mission and his vision for the gospel. So our judgment as people, it goes with Paul, because I would rather have unskilled, dependable people than very skillful, undependable people. They're harder to work with. I would rather train someone than have to deal with someone not responding or not showing up or not doing something. We want dependable people. So our judgment goes with Paul, but our heart goes with Barnabas because we want to be loving. But according to verse 40, what do we see? The church sides with Paul. They commend his ministry, but it says nothing about commending Barnabas. Not saying that he was outside of faithful ministry, but what we can deduce from that likely is that Paul was in the right. But what I see in this text is that we can learn a couple valuable lessons for us. First, Christians, we ought to uh, imitate the kind-heartedness and forgiveness of Barnabas. Forgiveness flows from a heart that knows it's been forgiven by God. And second, however, we must learn from Paul's conviction and determination. While we must be apt to forgive always, we must not let our emotional attachments hinder or direct our gospel vision. Paul knew the challenges of the road ahead. He knew what it would take and what they would face on the missionary journey. And he, in his opinion, looked at John Mark and said, you're not suitable for this mission. Not saying he wasn't suitable to be used by God. Remember, John Mark goes on to write the gospel of Mark. He was a very apt young man. But Paul knew that he wouldn't be able to face this, uh, the trials that they would face on this journey and the suffering that would come. Paul needed men who, were prove, who had proven conviction and determination and who would willingly die for the gospel and not flake on them halfway through. He needed determination. And one of the beautiful things that this verse shows us is that the apostles were real humans. They weren't a separate class of Christian. They weren't super saints. They were just like us. They still made mistakes. And maybe they went just a little bit too far in their arguments. Come on, all you married folk know, you get in an argument with your spouse and you know when you've said that one thing, like, uh-oh, I probably went a little too far there. And what do we do out of pride? We just double down and go harder. We don't repent. But, uh, but what we see here is that Paul and Barnabas probably went a little too far in their arguing. One, one Pauline scholar says on this, he goes, I am so comforted whenever I read about this passage because if I were to never read about disagreements among the apostles, I would be quite afraid. So what is he saying there? He's saying that he's likely had some disagreements with other godly men and women in his life. 
but he sees it reflected here in Scripture. Again, we see God, what we see all throughout the pages of Acts as Jesus is leading the mission forward is God is using imperfect people like you and me, imperfect vessels, to be carriers of his perfect message. So yes, we make mistakes. Yes, we stumble, but his message is perfect. Paul and Barnabas were humans. They were not angels. And the truth is that the best of Christians, the most godly of Christians, don't always agree. Sometimes we disagree, and sometimes we intensely disagree. And you guys are fine to disagree with me as long as you always know I'm right at the end of the day. That is, that is okay. No, I'm kidding. But disagreements will come. They'll even come in the house of God's people But because we as Christians, we still live and inhabit a world that is full of sin and we are still living in bodies that are prone to rebellion through habit. We must not be surprised when disagreements arise amongst us. We must, however, learn from this episode between Paul and Barnabas to not leave it in bitterness like we see here. Separation in the ministry might have been the right course of action as we see there's two ministry heads now. But we have to always remember that disagreement needs to be rooted in godliness and in holiness. So the point here is that the relationship between two great men of God failed. We don't read anywhere in the text of them getting together saying, hey, let's just pray about this. Let's see what the Holy Spirit wants us to do. Let's see if it's good for us to take John Mark or to leave him aside or to split off into two separate missionary journeys. Let's pray and discern God's will. No, what we actually see is the absence of a harmonious conclusion, which indicates the unstated, but to me, the undeniable of a failure of two of the greatest souls the church has ever known in their relationships. We don't see them repairing it here. Rather, we see them leaving in bitterness. So what does this reveal about us, how God directs his servants? While God did not cause this disagreement or the fateful separation, he used it to guide both men into increased fruitfulness and service. There were now two missionary journeys going on. All we know about is really Paul's. He is the one who stays in history, Barnabas, and leaves history at this point. But moreover, what we see is God taking this disagreement, this argument, and producing something really good about it. You see Silas, the one who Paul takes, adds a couple things to uh, the equation that Barnabas couldn't add. For one, he was a Roman citizen. Paul always liked to throw out that card when he was in trouble. Oh, by the way, do you know you're hitting a Roman citizen? And people backed off, right? So now Silas, his other partner could claim the same status. He was a prophet. He served as Paul's stenographer for a time. And though Barnabas was a great loss, Silas was a great gain. And it's often through, as we see here, our difficulties and failures that God leads us into increased creativity and productivity in our ministries and in our lives. God uses these experiences to point us and to lead us and to direct us into areas where we would never dream of or we would never think of possible or we have never even thought of, fathomed of where he was going through. And sometimes he uses these disagreements and these failures and these experiences to get us out of our ruts. We as humans, we get into ruts, we get complacent, we get into these funks, and these types of experiences wake us up a little bit, get us refocused, and God likes to use those. Outside of Christ, this type of disagreement and all of our failures are devastating because they shape and form our lives. But inside of Christ, our failures, our disagreements, 
may feel just as equally devastating, but we know we have a hope in Christ that he is in them, that he's working them out, and that he's leading and guiding us into areas where we'd never think that we could go, or he might be helping us to identify secret sin in our life that we're refusing to repent of. He uses these things to shape and mold us more into the conformity of his son and take us to places where we wouldn't think possible. So though there is nothing wrong with success, we should, as Christians, serve God with excellency and strive in excellency, but it's through our failures that we often learn the most. We sometimes experience what we discern as failures, and we can't see the hand of God's guidance any clearer than Paul did in our scripture today as he set out heartsick on his second missionary journey with his new companion. And it's in those moments when we don't know what God is doing, but we still set out, is when we need to accept God's direction and entrust our lives to him, knowing that he is the good shepherd, that we should not seek failure and we shouldn't excuse failure, but we can learn from it and grow through it. So Paul and Silas, they hit the road. They're headed towards the churches that they have planted with Barnabas and they, and they administered to on their first missionary journey. And this is where they discover Timothy. And what we see is direction and uh, is discerned in the enlistment of Timothy. So oftentimes God will bring men and women into our lives that help confirm that we're on the right track, help point us in a new direction, or just uh, bring about a whole new element to our mission that we never had, which we see with Timothy, picking up in chapter 16, verse 1. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. But his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. All they want, all, uh, uh, sorry, as they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decision that had been reached by the apostles and the elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. So when Paul arrived back on the scene at Lystra, he, sta- he, he started to hear about this young man named Timothy who had a good reputation in the church, in the community, but not just in their community, but even in the whole town, a whole block, a mile, a couple miles away, he even had a good reputation in that uh, town. Most scholars, as I was reading, argue between Timothy's age at this point, either between the age of 16 and 18. I would probably uh, uh, fall towards 18, but it's all speculation at this point. Uh, But this teen's name was Timothy. He had a godly upbringing under his mother Eunice and his grandmother Lois, as we would see detailed in the epistle of 2 Timothy. And it's likely that his father was an unbelieving Gentile because the text just calls him a Greek, not a God-fearer or a believer. And what this shows us, this little clip about Timothy, is that we as Christians, we all have a reputation. We all have a reputation. It's either a good reputation or it's a bad reputation. And whether you like it or not, your reputation goes out before you. And oftentimes your reputation is known before you're even known. And it's either they know bad things about you or they know good things about you. And so what this should make us think is how what are you known for? We'll start here first in our church. 
What do people know you as? What's your reputation in the walls of FBC Drumheller? Are you known for strong opinions, general rudeness, complaining? Or are you known to build up the church, to be praying for the church, to support the elders, to be loving on others, to having people in your homes? What are you known as, as a follower, as Christ? What are you known like in the community of Drumheller? Well, clearly I'm never going to that church because that person was just a jerk, right? So what are you like? Because what we see Timothy here is the, at the age of 18 has a reputation, a good reputation, which means that he was building that reputation from a young age. So teens, if you're sitting in here still, you're not off the hook. You also have a reputation in your homes and in your schools. How are we living like Christ? We are called to live like him and be carriers of hope in our community. And by, that's my prayer that we, as Christ followers, would be known as that as making Christ's name known to our community. But continue on. It's likely that Timothy came to Christ under Paul's first missionary endeavor there in his visit, either through the physical listening of Paul preaching himself and seeing him be stoned, or by the church that was left and growing by Paul and Barnabas. We're, we're not sure, but what we do see is that there's this growing young man, this disciple who is hungry for the faith of God, and it caught the eye of the apostle, which probably wasn't an easy thing to do. And what happened next in our text after he meets Timothy might surprise you. He meets Timothy and then he just goes and circumcises him. And you might be thinking, what? First off, like that's not how I meet anybody, you know, but uh, you know, you think what's happening here? This is Paul the apostle who's just come from the Jerusalem council, who made the case that we no longer need circumcision for salvation. And then we just see a few verses later, the same Paul doing almost what looks like the exact opposite. You might be thinking, well, what's going on here? Is this an error in the Bible? Is the Bible, is it full of contradictions? Can I even trust what I'm reading? Is Paul being double-minded? And some liberal scholars have suggested that this circumcision was a compromise of principle of the Council of Jerusalem, but it wasn't. It's not, it seems to be in direct conflict, but it's actually a totally different game going on here. So some have suggested that, but what actually is happening is we see Paul's strong conviction that circumcision is not part of salvation. You'll see that later in Galatians 2, 3 to 5, when he defends Titus, who was a pure Greek, and the state of Gentile liberty was at stake again. But Timothy is a whole different ballgame. He was both Jew and Greek, and he was uncircumcised, and his uncircumcision would have continued to offend the Jews with no advantage to the cause of freedom. So in order to resolve this apparent discrepancy in our text, we need to observe two points. The first, question, the first is the question that was raised in Antioch that sparked the Jerusalem council was whether Gentile believers, full-out Gentiles, needed to be circumcised in order to be Christian. Second, Timothy was a Jew because there was a rule at this time that the mother's religion was passed on, not the father's. So in Jewish eyes, his mother would have failed the Old Testament and violated it by not having her son circumcised. So the resolution of the Jerusalem Council has no direct bearing on what we're reading about here today. Paul, however, understood that as long as Timothy remained uncircumcised, 
his faithfulness uh, his, uh, to the law, his, his uh, identity as a Jew, his spiritual integrity would constantly be questioned on their journey. Remember what we stated a couple weeks ago. Paul had a habit when he went into new places. Where did he start preaching? Who can remember? Synagogues. And if he brought in a Jew who was uncircumcised, they would spend most of their time arguing about that rather than getting to the gospel. So Paul knew for Timothy to have any type of authority, any type of respect, any type of integrity, it would require him to remove the thing that was causing hindrance, that he must be circumcised. So Timothy's lack of circumcision was a, 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 a potential stumbling block to the Jews, a hindrance to the gospel. So Paul took him and removed it. And in doing so, what we should really be focusing on here is Timothy's attitude. Timothy willingly removed the stumbling block for the sake of the gospel. This is in line with what we were talking about last week, that we as a church should constantly be looking at our preferences, constantly looking at our traditions, constantly looking at all the things that we hold dear that are not spelled out in Scripture, that are potential hindrances to the gospel going forward into Drumheller. And we should be like Timothy, and we should cut them off. We should remove them. And it's not easy. Timothy's experience wasn't easy either. But to be clear, Timothy's circumcision made him more of a Jew, but it did not make him more of a Christian. This wasn't a salvation issue. It did, however, demonstrate his faithfulness as a Christian in undergoing circumcision in order to remove the impediment of preaching to his preaching ministry among the Jews. He was willing to endure severe pain for the sake of of the gospel. Only faith can secure our salvation, but at the same time, some works and some acts are necessary and good for our evangelism. And this continues to be the case today. Timothy demonstrated the heart of evangelists here as a servant of Christ, willing to do whatever it took to see people coming to saving faith. Are we willing to do whatever it would take to see Drumheller come to saving faith? Are we willing to remove things from our lives or from our, our church uh, services that we hold dear that are not in Scripture, willingly to reach our community. It might hurt. We like to be comfortable. We like to sit in our same chair week after week. We like to do the same thing week after week. We don't like to change. But we'll only change when we're willing to uh, experience the pain of change as a necessary step to reach our people. So Timothy's willingness would, would have reinforced Paul's perception of the young man and his reputation in the town. And these verses also communicate that God's guidance is a multifaceted jewel. Lystra was the place where Paul is right now. And remember, Lystra was also the place where Peter, or sorry, where Paul was stoned just a few years ago. And, uh, and it's also in Lystra where now he finds Timothy. And this is all speculation on my behalf, but I'm sure Paul's time here in this town was a bit bittersweet. 
He, I, I would have no, uh, I, 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 if I was Paul, I would be sitting there in my quiet times reflecting on the times when I was stoned, when I was rejected from this place, and it would be hard to remove those. And also, Paul was probably still lamenting how his relationship with Barnabas broke down. This was a hard time for Paul, and both these experiences, the stoning and his breakdown of relationship, brought disappointment and pain to him, but God loves to act at these times, to bring joy in our darkest moments and hope during our trials. And now it, it, now we see in Lystra where uh, Paul finds Timothy and this trio is formed. And it's almost like God is redeeming this place. Like you don't even need to worry about the stoning anymore. You're always going to remember Lystra as the place where you found your spiritual son. Timothy. And what I see, what I pull from this is this idea of what we see throughout all of Christianity is that ever since Golgotha, the darkest place uh, in all of history, Christianity has turned hardships and failures into holiness and honor to God. Everything can be worked into this, even the darkest moments of our life that we would never imagine happening. The sovereign God makes excellent use of the most trying circumstances, even yours. In Paul's missionary policy here, we see it working and it's going smooth. He has a trio put together, but it's not gonna be smooth sailing for long. This little trio is gonna run into some closed doors as we continue reading in verse six, which says, and they went through the region of, um, sorry, uh, and they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went uh, down to Taurus, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there and urging him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately, Immediately, we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So what we see, this strange story, provides several important and fascinating lessons as we try to discern the will of God for our lives. The first being that a good plan, oh, did I, sorry, I'm ahead of myself. A good plan is not always the right plan. It's not always the right plan. Paul's earlier ideas about how to take the gospel next uh, had plenty of merit. He knew what he wanted to do. He had his plan. There was a fertile fit mission field throughout Asia. Everything made sense about going there. And, he, he, and it's always okay to stop and check if that makes sense because God gave us brains and he expects us to use them. But this time was one of those times when human reason was not enough. God's plan had something else in store for this trio. And so we see Paul building his team up. He has a trio. They're ready to go. He's advancing the gospel to the nations. And the Spirit of God says, hey, don't go there. And then the Spirit of Jesus later says, no, don't speak of me there. Don't go there. And you could just sense Paul's frustration. I know I would be frustrated. Like, what? Why can't I do that? And it's almost like God is saying, because I have a greater purpose that God, I have planned. But Paul, the important thing we see is that his 
mission was stopped dead in his tracks and he also pumped the brakes with it. And maybe you relate to this. Maybe you have all these plans in your life. Either you're graduating uh, college and you're ready to take on the job that you always wanted to have or you're heading off to college and you think, I know what the Lord wants me to do and things are all starting to fall into place or maybe you're currently serving in a job and everything you're hitting all your career goals all your aspirations or you're a family who has all these plans and aspirations and everything seems to be falling into place life couldn't be better and then God goes guess what here's a curveball and it's almost like the carpet gets ripped out from underneath your feet and you can just sense that Why, God? Why are you doing this? I had all my plans. I had all these things lined up. And if anyone knows me personally, I love my plans. And it's hard for me to go any other direction. So I sympathize with this. Like, what are you doing, God? I knew we were going to be there. And now you're changing the course of action. And it's in these moments when we don't know what God is doing, where where we need to trust and obey all the more. When I graduated my first round of Bible college, I was talking with a director of a mission in Africa. I had a heart for missions in Africa. I was approved to go on missions in Africa. I was ready to serve the rest of my life in Africa. And I was all ready to go, but I kept feeling this sense in my heart that God wanted me to stay here in Canada. And I said, no way, I don't want to stay in Canada, not Canada, anywhere but Canada. And I'm Canadian. Um, I just wanted to be on the mission field. And God just kept confirming that this is where I'm to be. This is where, and I'm sure I could have pushed forward and I could have went to Africa, but I would have been in disobedience to God and he would not have blessed the ministry that I would have set out to do. So, lucky for you, now you're stuck with me, um, and here I am. But most of the, one of the things we need to know is that when we're trying to be obedient to what God, uh, God's guidance is humility. We need to have humility to recognize when God says no, and we need to willingly pump the brakes with him. See, Paul had a plan. Paul had an agenda. Paul had a direction. He had a course of action. He knew where he was headed, but God stopped him. The Spirit of God intercepted. The Spirit of Christ spoke and said, no, I have a different plan for you. And determination is a good quality to have. We should have determination, but determination can easily degenerate into stubbornness and disobedience. If Paul had surrendered to stubbornness, then he would have pressed on into Asia. Or maybe he would have just accepted the first no, but time the second no goes, he's like, okay, come on, we got to get something done. uh, And we would have seen him push on into Bithynia. But that's not what we see. We see Paul was humble, and that's how we should live our lives as well. He recognized that it was God who was putting on the brakes, and Paul accepted that in the moment And he had no idea what it meant or where he was going. And oftentimes that's where we are as Christians. We know where we can't stay, but we don't know where we're going. We see that with Abraham. He gets called out of his home place and he doesn't know where he's necessarily headed, but he's obedient. See, for most leaders, this is a very hard thing to admit that we don't know what God wants us to do at this moment. And and not even just for leaders, but almost for all Christians to accept the uncertainty is difficult. Because isn't it a lack of faith not to know? Isn't it a reflection of my lack of prayer life that I don't know where God wants me to go? Isn't it a failure of vision as a Christian or a breakdown of my service to Christ? 
And oftentimes we think those lies, so what we do is we press on with the knowledge we have and the plan we have, because surely we have to do something. God doesn't just want us to sit. And in doing so, what that communicates is that we have more wisdom than God, that our wisdom is better, that God needs our help. He's a little uh, distracted right now. I need to remind him that I'm trying to do something down here. So we operate out of our own wisdom. We play the God card, and what that boils down to is pride. But humility positions us to be flexible and willing to pivot when God says no. And thirdly, we see out of our humility and openness to new direction, which is a very, very hard thing to be open to. There is a charming but dangerous uh, naivety that if you are sincerely following God, he will always keep you on the right path automatically. No questions asked. And it's the idea that as you walk by faith, you can never get lost. As if God is our personal infallible GPS system with unfailing right directions to God's perfect will. But doubt would be failure to trust the guidance we have already. Such confidence in God's directing sounds wonderful, but it also poses some dangers. One of them is the risk of becoming closed-minded to any other plan that God lays on your path. Going to Macedonia wasn't Paul's first choice. It was actually third on the list. He didn't even know about it. It wasn't even in his mind. He, intended, he had no intentions of going there. But Asia proved to be wrong. Bithynia proved to be wrong. And now, in a vision in the night, we see Paul seeing a man from Macedonia calling out for help. And if Paul stuck with plan A, the missionary band would have been in the wrong continent. And this would be a totally different story. But when it comes to guidance... Paul's story highlights two particular dangers that we need to avoid. The first is the assumption that we have understood God rightly the first time. Now, don't hear me wrong. Sometimes God's telling you to jump and you need to jump, okay? But it is, it is actually can be uh, uh, arrogance when we think that I've heard God. I am the authority of God. I understand God's will the, uh, without any questions asked. But it's good for us to revisit that, to to touch base with God, to know what he's going to operate out of his wisdom and not ours. Hearing God's leading at times can be kind of like a radio for anyone who still uses radios, right? You can be a couple tunes out. You can still hear the station, but it's a little fuzzy, right? So you need to discern what's going on. And that's what we see with God's will. Sometimes our tuning's just a little bit out and we need to make, we might be hearing something and it would be prideful for us just to operate automatically out of that. The second thing is not realizing God is in diversions or rerouting. Sometimes we as Christians, we think that it's less spiritual for us to be rerouted or for a diversion to come in our lives. But oftentimes that's how God operates. Um, uh, uh, Jesus, for example, a woman touched his robe and was healed of an illness that she had for her life. And God stopped and healed her. Jesus stopped and healed her. He changed course. And that's just one of the examples throughout the gospel. And it's in this vision from the Macedonian people that the Lord clarifies the direction that Paul is to go, Call, Paul, calling Paul onto this mission field into Europe. See, we as servants of God need to know this truth, that our steps are ordered by the sovereign Lord. And it's in his providence that he directs us into things that are good 
into more of him. Therefore, we have to trust even in times of doubt. God, I don't know what you're doing around me. I don't know what you're doing right now, but I trust you. And I'm going to take this step and obey you. You see, what we need to understand is oftentimes we don't know what God is doing until after we take the step, not before, because then it wouldn't be faith. It's after we choose God and follow his direction that is when we see him moving and what he's doing. So many times there are moments we have been faithfully grinding out in disciplines and faithfulness to God and we cry, Lord, I don't see the results I want, but it's in those times that we need to trust God's perfect timing It's saying, Lord, in your providence, this is for my good and this is for your glory. And we see that with Paul's life and we hear that in the Macedonian call. And if you study, as I close, the culture of Macedonia, what you see is that it's a wicked culture. Uh, it's a wicked time. It has a failed government, Roman system. The government was corrupt. Liberties and freedoms were being taken away. There were intellectual fallacies from the Greek mythologies and understandings of things uh, and contradictions of those philosophies. They were neglecting the poor. They had ignorance to the follies of humanism and the worship of human nature itself. So what we're seeing in Macedonia is basically it was a spiritual destitute place. Their idea of God was polytheistic. There was many gods and many ways to God. And in their state of moral helplessness, Paul sees them crying out to God for help. And when I read about this, when I read about Macedonia, I can't help but think it sounds awfully familiar. It sounds like Canada to me. It sounds very familiar to the world in which you and I live. We have a generation for the first time. I said this last week and I'll say it again. Generation Z is the least evangelized generation ever to walk the face of this earth. They're raised in a post-Christian world who are skeptical about Christianity. I've met teens who know nothing about the Bible. Nothing about the Bible. They are the least evangelized generation to ever walk this earth. And they live in a Canada today that is fractured with a government that fights for power rather than working together in a fractured Canada that is continually threatening losses of freedom that is called a free nation with an educational programs that are based on postmodern philosophies. And it prevails and screams and cries out tolerance and acceptance and inclusion rather than exclusivity to the one true living God. And when we see this type of moral helplessness, we see the world crying out. And rather than crying out to God, they're self-medicating through drugs, alcohol, gluttony, and acceptance. And we live in that same type of culture as the Macedonians. And our culture as well is crying out for help, and they don't even know where to go in this post-Christian world. They are crying out for help, and you and I stand positioned ready to bring that help, ready to bring that hope. You have the hope of God living inside of you and you are called to be bearers and witnesses of that hope, to bring it into the darkest parts of our community and to shine that hope bright, unashamed of the gospel that you bear and give it to them because that's what they're looking for. That's what they're searching for. So we have this inside of us and the natural question is, well, what do we do? Do we share it? The answer is yes. We must always, as Christians, carry hope to those. Well, I'm way behind. It's not even working. You must have unclicked off the computer. Sorry. We must carry hope to those who are carrying 
for help. When we look at the Macedonian cry for help, it should break our hearts for the status of our world. We should have the brokenness over the lostness of our towns. It should break our hearts that your neighbor who lives beside you doesn't know Jesus. It should break your heart. So what do we do? We could just sit here and hope somebody else is doing it, but nobody will. Or we could jump in. We could take that step and not knowing where it might lead. It might cause some pain. It might cause some hurt. It might even be uncomfortable. But we're called to do it. And we know that as, 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 as Dave started off this uh, journey in Acts, that Jesus is leading this mission for us. And it's empowered by the Holy Spirit. You're not to do this on your own. He lives in you and has empowered you and is leading you and guiding you to the ones who are around you. We are far, far past the days when people will walk through our church door just because they feel like they should go to church that Sunday. It's not even on their minds anymore. Christianity doesn't hold that type of sway anymore. So we must get up out of our chairs, out of our ruts, out of our funks, and live as the hope that lives inside of us to our community. Amen? So how can we be like Timothy, remove the hindrances, how can we be like Paul, be willing to change course? And how can we discern the will of God in our area, in Drumheller? And those are the questions that I want to leave you to ponder.